Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nabe. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEIFM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I would like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. Wherever you are, WalterParks.com if you'd like to get in touch with Walter. If you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. Each week on Saturday morning, Allegra Houston and I, we host a, an imaginative storm prompt of the week writing session. And you can join us with no problem at all. And the door is always open. It only lasts an hour. That's noon Eastern time, 10 o'clock Mountain time, and 5 o'clock in the afternoon London time. Imaginativestorm.com. If you would like to write with me, I would love to get to know you that way. And I'd like to thank Devine Dial for all her work she does at WPVM-FM. She holds the station together. She manages it. And she knows as much about radio as anybody. And we are most appreciative for that, which allows all of the contributors to broadcast wherever they want in the world. As I said, it's a global proposition, community radio. Funny enough about that. And if you've been listening to this show, you know I, I often have all kinds of different guests. Some people I just met. Other people I've known for a long time. Today, I have my good friend, Nathan Brown, on for an hour conversation with us. Nathan is a poet. He's a singer-songwriter. He comes out of Oklahoma. He bases himself out of Texas now. Nathan is the former uh, poet laureate of Oklahoma, and he has been doing work in the realm of letters and songwriting as long as I've known him. That's This is what this guy does. He makes his living at this. So I'm really thrilled to have Nathan Brown on with us today. So Nathan, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Navi. And I want to just jump right in. One of the reasons I rang you up and asked you to be with us, I tuned in to one of your recent fire pit sessions on Facebook Live, and you were just absolutely having the best time anybody I've ever seen on Facebook. You seem to just be totally in your element. You had some fire torches in the back and a gong hanging from the tree and you were playing your guitar and, and just talking along. And so I would love to start this interview by having you talk to us about the evolution of the fire pit, the fire pit sessions. And the reason that's important because a lot of people have been online presenting their work from an artistic point of view by way of the digital space. So tell us your motivation for that, what your experience was like and, and how your work created your comfort level as you went along. Yeah. Well, the story is of my year, my journey through the crazy year of the pandemic. Since I am a traveling, performing artist and teacher, and that's what I do for a living around March and April of 2020. I sat with email and texting and my phone and everything and watched the lights go out on my career. It has been a very strange year of staying put for me. I've had years where I've put 15,000 miles on my car and that's my life and that's what I do. So when I sat, you know, March, April, 2020 and watched 
every single thing cancel. And just realizing that every money-making opportunity uh, that I had over the year was just going away and it was going away rapidly and I had nothing. It's quite a frightening kind of moment. And around that time, my wife was having a Zoom happy hour uh, with two friends, one in Houston and one in Denver. And they were sitting there with their glasses of wine and she was on the back porch, you know. And one of her friends said, well, you know what? Nathan should just put the word out for people to commission poems and they can tell him what they want him to write a poem about and he can write them a poem. And then for a donation of any size, you know, because everybody's been affected differently by the pandemic. So if all you have is this, that's fine. If you can do a little more, that's great, whatever. And just write people commissioned poems. I laughed at first, <laughs> but having nothing else to do. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, you know, let's see what happens. Well, I just put the word out. I did an email out and I did some posting on Facebook and it began to come in. For instance, I was getting commissions uh, from the Bronx. I mean, it was really dark there for a while. I got a commission from Saudi Arabia, uh, one was from the island of Tonga. What I realized was that the prompts that were coming from other parts of the world were darker. The commissions began to roll in and I was just shocked. I mean, it was becoming a part of my daily writing exercise. I, was, I actually had to create a list <laughs> of the commissions and prompts that I was receiving. So what happened was it grew so quickly that I realized, oh, we've got a book series on our hands. So I now have a summer, fall, winter, spring, encyclopedic, chronological look at the year of COVID, but not through my eyes necessarily, through the eyes of all the people who commissioned poems, which is a very different thing, because they were all in very different parts of the world. I, I couldn't believe what was happening. Because it takes a while for a book to come out, I thought, well, people are wanting to hear this stuff now. And so I would say around May, without having any idea what I was doing, I started a live video series on Facebook called The Fire Pit Sessions, where I would take do anywhere from two to five poems, and then I end with a song. What happens is I contact the people say, hey, I'm doing your poem in tonight's Fire Pit Session, and they would contact their relatives and family, especially like last year when everybody's locked down, there's nothing else to do. When they got family to tune in, that increased the commissions. And so more and more people started commissioning because they were watching the fire pit sessions. And I would sometimes do two and three fire pit sessions a week. One began to feed the other. So people wanted to commission poems because they wanted to hear their poem read in a fire pit session. <laughs> and it just, and so it turned into this fire. I mean, I was just throwing wood from all kinds of angles. Honestly, Nave, you've been a friend a long time. And I, and I want to tell you, you know that I've written every day for 25 years now. I write a poem every morning, you know, even if it sucks. I just, I write, <laughs> I write a poem every morning and that's just going to happen. And I've done it for 25 years. Well, I have to say that this year, in spite of being financially tough, when it comes to artistic growth and change, it probably had the biggest impact that anything has had on me in a very, very long time. That's an incredible report. And when you say artistic change, what, what do you mean by that? 
And did your change come internally? Did you become less self-conscious? Did you become more aware of the connection you were having with this individual? So it seemed like it might've been a collaborative thing, whereas the poem of the day is more singular. Mm -hmm. Writing is more often than not, it's inside your own head. So when I say change, one of the biggest things that happened to me was I was forced to get outside of my own head. So when I did have like a past student of mine from years back who was now living in the Bronx, uh, commission a poem while she was quite literally stuck in her apartment in the Bronx and couldn't go anywhere because it was New York's darkest hour. Well, it forced me to get out of my own head and try to absorb someone else's story. So it started a little bit of an email exchange with her. And she just began to talk about, you know, being in the Bronx and looking out your window and seeing no one in the streets or the sidewalk. And just how bizarre that looks, how apocalyptic it looked and things like that. Uh, the one from the island of Tonga was a Peace Corps worker who was being forced to leave because of the pandemic. But Tonga was about the safest place you could possibly be. And nobody could figure out why they were making them leave because it was much safer than where they were being forced to come back to. And she was heartbroken because she loved these people and she wanted to stay. And I mean, and who doesn't want to leave a place that has like a five degree window of the upper 70s and lower 80s and that and never, <laughs> never changes year round it's like and mangoes falling on the ground from trees and fish every day for food like why do you want to leave this place you know and so hers was heartbreaking she was having to go home to port arthur texas nothing but oil refineries it was a hard story she was heartbroken you know so what happened as an artist, research became a part of my life. I've done that anyway. But I mean, I had to research. I was having to learn, do research on places, geographical research. Other people's heartbreaks and their stories forced me out. It seems to me as you're telling this story, you were acting as a poet. You were also a journalist. This four book series turned out so it goes through it's it, it's basically three month chunks it's a very chronological experience encyclopedic in a way the first book was in the days of our seclusion and book two was those summer months in the days of our unrest book three was the fall so election time and its title was in the days of our undoing and then the fourth book, I wanted to do everything I could to try to swing us back to coming back to life. And so that book's title was In the Days of Our Resilience. And so that was the progression of the book series. It was a very journalistic experience. So the books follow the protest and then the election and the craziness of those three months <laughs> leading up to the election. And then the fallout. December was just like a fallout. Things were crazy. There's supposedly a new president, but the old one's not leaving. And people were scared. No matter what side they fell on, they were scared by the uneasiness and the unrest and the weirdness, you know. So then you're getting these commissions from people all over the place, and they're expressing their immediate fears, trepidations, maybe joys, maybe surprises, all of those things related to this era we've gone through. So you had to somehow 
figure out how to translate that into text. Did you find when you were translating these requests from all these people, did your style shift from person to person? You have a distinct storytelling voice, a poetic voice. I know it well. I have the same sort of voice in my work. I have a Nave voice that you can even recognize by the way I play with the words on the page. I'm somewhat familiar with the Nave voices. Yeah, I know you are. We've worked together often on stage and stuff, so we know how it works. But did you find that your voice or the tone or your approach changed when you were working with each, fair to say, collaborator? I did. And also, by the way, not only with each collaborator, but over the year of the fire pit sessions, when I would begin to see what I was doing, a live audience is home for me. And so, you know, trying to trying to make make love into a camera lens that's the size of a zit gets pretty gets pretty hard. (laughs) I mean, there's just nothing there and there's nothing coming back. That was hard. (laughs) And so what happened was, as I began to look at those videos, I, I actually began to alter my voice, work on some mannerisms. Here's two quick examples of the collaborator aspect, which you brought up first, right? One was towards the end of April, maybe early May, when I received the first commission from someone who lost their spouse to COVID, died very longly and painfully from COVID. And she wanted me to write a poem for her husband who had died of COVID. Oh my God, now what? Now what do I do? Because how do you treat this respectfully but also not stupidly it has to be real, but you have to be sensitive, man. There's relatives involved. They had seven kids. I'll tell you the truth. That poem went through not only multiple edits from me, but we went through 12 to 15 edits between me and her. That was a gut wrencher and a game changer when it taught me a lot about editing. Do you have that poem handy right now? I, I do. I would love to hear you read it. It worked out well logistically in that it's the final poem in book one, which is In the Days of Our Seclusion. And by the way, all of these are available on Amazon now. All four books are out and available on Amazon. I have discovered that if you search Nathan Brown poetry, most of my stuff will come up. So this was a commission from the town I grew up in, Norman, Oklahoma, it is for Carol Nafee in honor of Robert N. Nafee Jr., Monday, June 1st. And the title of the poem is The Ritual. Our lives, as they tend to move on, and time, as poets have said since its beginning, flows on like a turgid river. But the 29th day of March in 2020, doesn't budge. It stays stubbornly right where it was, right where we barely got to say our goodbyes in the required armor of the ICU that is tough to remember or forget. And now the separations from the one who left us, but also the ones left behind 
become like all unbearable griefs that must be born nonetheless. There are the conversations with him as well as the others, but with him now there's more of just listening on both sides. At the same time, it often seems that the quieter the messages are, the more we listen to their intent, the more power they have to help. And so it is that time, in its ever-swelling surge toward wherever it's so compelled to keep going, encourages us to begin thinking about what he would have wanted. And we will repeat it to each other in a soft but hard-felt ritual until it becomes what we want. Well done. And, and by the way, others came for one's lost. It was a year of death that was not COVID-related as well. Uh, there were a lot. John Prine, uh, Stephen Dunn, the poet, um, uh, Rudolfo Anaya, uh, the, I mean, just <laughs> we lost a lot of people this year. Those were commissions as well. People wanted me to write about Stephen Dunn and people who wanted me to write Adam Zagievsky, the awesome Polish poet. Adam Zagievsky died this year as well. It's just, oh man. So that was a big part of it. When you asked me earlier, did your voice change um, depending on who was commissioning or who was asking? And so get a load of this. My, my long-term, very trusted therapist, counselor, who uh, has saved my life over and over again for the last seven years or so, uh, for many reasons. He commissioned a poem. It was a little strange. What I should really tell my therapist is. That poem is a little too long to read, but let me describe to what happened. What happened was, first of all, the poem was written in three sessions. So there's session one, session two, and each one I would come to the end and I would go, okay, well, we're out of time for today. So I'll see you next time, whatever. And then, and then session two, and I kept going. And it was these little one, two, three, and four line quips, like little cones. And it was this massive, probably seven or eight page poem in the book series. I took him at his word. And I said, so here it comes, buddy. <laughs> what I should really tell my therapist is, I, I remember a couple of them. One was I asked him a question and I said, don't worry, I have to lie for a living too. And, you know, <laughs> he was just, this is me telling my therapist, it's like, I know you lie to me, but it's how we all survive. I mean, he just loved it. I mean, he threw it out among his, his therapy community. It was a hilarious fire pit session. That was one of the more watched fire pit sessions. And it was the only thing I did in that fire pit session was just that one poem. So my voice completely changed to brutal honesty mode, saying things that made my wife uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, you got to walk out there on the edge or people stop listening. That's, that's absolutely true. And you said brutal honesty. I'd like for you to reflect on what that means in your life and in your work, because people bring that up a lot in these conversations I have, these interviews, I talk to a lot of poets and they bring that idea up of be honest, be authentic. And I love to ask people what that means personally. You, when you say brutal honesty, what does that mean to you? And what would be the example of something that wouldn't be honest that then 
could be turned into honesty. Wow. I would have to ask you more questions about what you mean by that. I actually, I guess I'm asking this question because it's, it's really a personal question for me because I, I don't really know when I write how honest I am. I think I'm being honest, but then when you say brutally honest, I wonder, well, where else could I go? What else could I do? How do I know I'm being brutally honest? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm just asking mm -hmm. this as a general conversation question because I don't really, I don't really know the answer to it. Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't either, Nathan. Well, oh, I, I, I probably don't, but I can talk anyway. <laughs> you know, but, you know, one of the things is, I think you bring up a great point in that we, you know, like the first thing the poet needs to do is to stop using the word brutal in front of the word honest because it doesn't work anymore. It's ineffectual. So what I might do for starters is change the adjective. And I might say unnervingly, uh, to be unnervingly honest. So one of the things in my work that I encounter a strange amount is that I have people come up to me and just say, I can't even fathom saying something like that about myself. You know, after a reading, if I do a performance or whatever, and I've read a poem or whatever, and I say, I just can't even imagine like saying that about myself. A really innocent, quick little example in a book I came out with many years ago called My Salvaged Heart, Story of a Cautious Courtship. It was a series of poems over a four-year period that I had written about my wife and I getting to know each other before we got married. There's a poem in there uh, where I crack a joke about being in the top of the Bell Tower Bar or in La Fonda in Santa Fe on the top floor outdoors. It's a beautiful place to watch a sunset. It's wonderful. But be, sitting there, and it was kind of a strange low-key night where not many people are there, and it's usually a very crowded place. And this guy gets up and walks away from a table and leaves a margarita on the table that's about three quarters full. I guess he didn't like it. it had a straw in it and was just sitting there. And I wrote this poem about it was cocktail porn, something that I have come to be known for. <laughs> it's my cocktail porn. And this poem is very short. It's all about lips and curves. And I'm talking about the glass and I run my hand and I go over and I pick it up and I bring it to my table and I set it down. You know, the end of the poem is I whisper in its ear, whatever is left in you is more than enough for me. And I had a guy, he actually sort of voiced out like in front of people. He's like, oh, dear God, please tell me that you did not drink that margarita. And I said, oh, yeah, that's the whole point of the poem. Sure, I did. I said, I don't like waste. People were just like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> but I do say things about myself that I have a lot of people tell me. I don't know if I could let people know that about me. Well, you're giving me a bit of insight into what you mean by this deeper honesty, the margarita glass sitting there, lightly touched alone at the table, and then you take it and put it at your table. There's a bit of a taboo in our culture. Had you and I been sitting there and I shared my drink with you, Nathan, would you like a taste? No problem. Prior COVID, back in the day when you had that experience, there, right. there was no taboo around it. Exactly. And so one wonders where the fear comes from in the culture regarding the stranger and the glass, maybe we think, oh, you can't possibly know what kind of contamination this stranger applied to the glass. Mm -hmm. And yet the odds of the stranger contaminating the glass 
not any higher than a, than a, somebody that you know. And had you met the stranger and had a 15, 20 minute conversation and the stranger became acquainted with you and offered to you the sip, it would be okay. Uh, not to mention that alcohol is an antiseptic. Alcohol is a germ killer. <laughs> Very interesting indeed. I'd like to go back for a moment to the, so Nathan, before we go on, I'd like to pause for just a moment and do a little station break and say to those of you out there listening, you are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville, 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Uh, thank you, Walter Parks, for your theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. If you'd like to know more about my work or get in touch with me. Also, if you would like to join join me on Saturday morning, every Saturday morning at 10 Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, 5 p.m. London Time, I am on a Zoom call with my collaborative business partner, Allegra Houston, and we host a writing workshop, the writing prompt of the week. And you can always join us. No, no, the door is always open. You can walk through and sit down at the at the digital table and, and write with us. Imaginativestorm.com is how you can find out about that. You can find your way to, to our table and we would be most uh, grateful if you if you showed up. It would be a wonderful thing. So imaginativestorm.com. And I thank you, Devine Dial, for all the good work you do managing WPVMFM, community radio. It belongs to all of us. And poetry, indeed, belongs to all of us as well. And I'm talking with Nathan Brown right now uh, about some compelling work he's doing, collaborative work with multiple, multiple people writing commissioned poems. And Nathan, before we go into the question I'd like to ask you about revision, maybe you would also be happy enough to offer us your website so people could get in touch with you. Yeah, so uh, my website is Brown Lines. It's one word, no capture. You just brown, brownlines.com. B-R-O-W-N-L-I-N-E-S.com. Brownlines.com. Uh, you write in all and kinds of- I have of worked hard on that website. It is comprehensive. It's got my music, my poetry, sample poems, all of my books uh, directly linked. Pretty comprehensive website. Yeah, it's built on the Wix platform, I think. Yeah, and it's also, I, I joke with people that it has an upcoming events page that I will frequently dial into when I'm on the road to figure out where I'm supposed to be next. <laughs> that page is more up to date than I am. So coming back to this work that you're doing, compelling commission work, collaborative work that you're doing with all of these different people, when you were mentioning the work you did early on with the woman from Oklahoma, husband had died, and you went back and forth with her, you said it taught you a lot about revision. What did you learn? You and I could probably teach a weekend long workshop on the nature of audience. 
And I think you and I have talked a lot about it. You know, the extent to which audience matters, how big do you want your audience to be? Uh, do you want it to be friends who know you? Do you want it to be statewide? Do you want it to be national? Do you want it to be international? And for every circle that you expand outward, when it comes to the concept of audience, I believe you have an entire new set of considerations. Now in Oklahoma, if you use the word Sooners, you don't have to explain yourself. Everybody knows that's the name of the football team. However, to someone in Maine or England or France or whatever, they're not going to have a clue what you're talking about. It's like nobody in Oklahoma knows what a Tar Heel is or a Boilermaker. Basically, there's cultural considerations depending on how large you want your audience to be. When I was talking earlier about how this project brought me out of myself, to be so engaged with another mind in the revision process really teaches you a lot about what you're doing and how it's affecting audience. I had that experience, not just with her, but with many, many people. It really has me rethinking again something that I thought I had thought plenty about which is the nature of audience. We have talked a lot about that, Nathan, and I've considered it as much as maybe you have, because I, we've been at this a long time. And I love the way you are folding in the, the ripple idea, starting local, the Sooners football team, or in North Carolina, the Tar Heels. And then you ripple out a little further and People might know the Sooners on the second or third ripple out, but after you get past that, they, they wouldn't know what that means. They think you're saying, are you going to be here sooner than later? And, and so there's different language usage. Are we moving in the direction of something universal in respect to creating work? Everybody, no matter where they are, understands. I don't know if that's possible or not, because at some point the ripples get faint on the lake and they arrive at a culture that we have no association with at all. And I wonder if then what we're attempting is universal. And perhaps we're talking about an energetic proposition as much as we are the way we word something. I don't know. One of my very favorite poets who we lost this year, Adam Zagajewski, is a Polish poet. And I was always amazed at how even when he was writing about Krakow, a place I have never been, he knew how to bring me in, even though he was writing in and about a city that I've never been to before. And it makes me just want to go there. <laughs> you know, but and I didn't mind at all that he was writing about a couple of things that I didn't know because he made sure not to leave me out. We're talking about craft. We're talking about a master poet who can create an immediate locale that seems completely local to those who live there and completely available to those who don't. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's a this is an incredible dance back and forth between those those two two propositions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Dunn was able to do that for me with New Jersey and uh, the Northeast where he lived. By the way, on a, on a flip side, when I was poet laureate, I put together an anthology of poems called Oklahoma Poems and Their Poets. I wanted to do an anthology of poems about Oklahoma, but the poet didn't have to be from Oklahoma. Everybody seems to do the opposite. They would do an anthology of Oklahoma poets. 
right? And I wanted poems about Oklahoma, whether the poet was from there or not. So, oh, I, I got George Bilgeer out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio, gave an awesome poem. Stephen Dunn uh, sent me a poem. And so it turns out, you remember the Oklahoma City bombing? I do remember well, that, One of the yes. finest poems in that anthology was a poem about the Oklahoma City bombing that was written by a poet who'd never been to Oklahoma City. And it was one of the best poems in the book. That's a poet. And it was about like a dinner party in New Jersey about the Oklahoma City bombing. You pull your collar while you're reading it. It's just like, wow, wow. I believe you put one of my poems in there, the Tulsa pool player. Yeah. The pool, the pool player poem. I forgot I about that. that. Yeah. He played, he I... played pool. That boy from Tulsa, his name was Jack. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's his right. name was, He played pool. That boy from Tulsa, his name was Jack and he could scatter those pool balls like rainbows across a green sky. And that's how it opens. I don't remember the rest of it, but it was a pretty good one. You know, I, I, ha I have to say, uh, Nave, not only did I love that poem, I, I have to say, like, even though that was back in the 2014, I'm still proud of that book. You know, Joy Harjo sent me a poem for that book. She actually fought with Norton. The proceeds were going to the Oklahoma Humanities Council. And so Norton was giving me some trouble. And I mean, Joy just shut them down quick, said, nope. You will, <laughs> you know, you will <laughs> let him use this poem. M. Scott Mamaday sent me a poem. Ron Paget, who's from Oklahoma, but no longer living there. I was amazed. These people were intense about the concept that I wanted a book of poems about Oklahoma, but not necessarily worried about the poets. And they just seemed to like the idea. Yeah, I, I was really pleased that you included me in that group because I've always enjoyed that little poem, the Tulsa Pooh player being it, Jack. It's a fun and, poem, man. It's a fun and poem. I thought, oh my goodness, it finally has a home. It finally has yeah, a home. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're moving on with our time together, I, if you would please give us a couple more of the commission poems. I would love to have those on record for the people listening. You think you could work that out? Yeah, well, let's see. I want you to understand is it's very close to a poem a day for a year. What I want to do is I'm, I'm reaching up here and I want to reach back to that time period of in the days of our unrest, which was book two. So this was the George Floyd summer. One of the fire pit sessions that had more views than any other fire pit session period. This had thousands of, of views was a poem that basically starts out book two in the days of our unrest. And it was a poem that I wrote for Derek Chauvin. So as a white person, I was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to respond to the George Floyd incident? And, you know, a lot of my friends, African-Americans, I've been having a lot of discussions with them. And they're saying like, one of the things white people can do right now to really help us out is just shut up for a while. Please just stop talking. Because we don't want to hear like how not a racist you are. I have friends who are as unnervingly honest with me as, as I am in, in my poetry. And we have these severely honest discussions and things. And so I thought, well, how am I going to address this whole thing? And I realized, oh, you know what? How I'm going to do that is I'm going to address Derek Chauvin. That's what I'm going to do. This was 
Tuesday, June 2nd, and I believe that the George Floyd's murder was May 25th. You know, that video was the only thing playing on television all day long. And so it's all we're seeing. And so I honed in on Derek Chauvin's face. I was looking at his face and really looking at his eyes. And that's where this poem came from. It's called The Fallen for Derek Chauvin, Tuesday, June 2nd. I am writing you a poem because you and I are both white and very much alive. So you still have the chance to hear me out on this. George Floyd, on the other hand, is black, very much dead, and will soon have a thousand better poems written in his honor. Honor being a thing you will never have again, a day in your now mostly over life. The math seems easy. I read faces. It's a part of my duty on the job. Another thing you lost, by the way, on that day when you forgot yourself. And what I saw there, just a white man turning whiter as his soul drained out of his knee in exactly eight minutes and 46 seconds. The loss of that vital state didn't stop there, though, as the soul of our nation somehow got its heart caught in the current as it churned against the flow from what I sensed in the moment of George's better soul as it must have been rising. And what I saw in that face was a horror-striking absence that looked like the next stage in the devolution of our species. Your forehead appeared to shrink. You lit a fire to consume the age, Minneapolis burning, protests that may determine whether or not all the rest of us will become smaller with you. What I saw in that shot of the final moment of your relative freedom, it made me question my past decision to suspend my old belief in hell and that it housed a disgraced angel that became Satan. So that's how I addressed Derek. Well, Nathan, I have to say that's a masterful approach you took there. I, I begin the very first book of the series at the very beginning of the very first chapter, I begin the four books with a brief quote from Stephen Dunn, the poet we've been talking about. He said, to register what it feels like to be alive in a particular moment in history is an enormous task. It's a very simple sounding phrase, but what he's actually saying is, don't be deceived by, you, you know, you're, you're just gonna register what's happening in a moment. The poet, the poet is required to bring out a consideration that people aren't necessarily talking about. Addressing Derek Chauvin was the best way I could do the end around and come in the back door and make people go, oh, because at that point we were still thinking, and as we should, about George. But I wanted to write the poem that said, but the problem is, that was my goal. That was what I was trying to figure out how to do. Well, I believe you succeeded at doing that. How did that approach 
affect you when you finished the piece and you signed off on it? What did you feel? And if you saw one of the fire pit sessions, you, you've seen some of what my fire pit is like. I, I do stone stacking, dry stack, where the rocks just have to lock into place and you don't use any materials to secure them. And I mean, some of my walls are like oh, nine feet tall. It's a meditation for me. The sheer amount of time that this year allowed me to think was blessing curse. I spent a lot of time out there with my stones, digging them up. In that moment, of course, the heartbreak was over George. But the thing about that whole thing for me was I just could not get over Derek Chauvin's face. The more I looked at it, I said, there, that, that I wasn't sure that I believed in pure evil anymore. And I was afraid that I might be seeing it. Whether or not he is a purely evil person, like over the course of his entire life, I'm afraid that in that moment, the only thing we had to go on was in that moment, his face was pure evil. That's a powerful observation. I'm a bit with you. I don't know if evil even exists in the sense yeah. of the way I, yeah. we refer to it. I was having a conversation with a fellow last night. He's a theologian and he was talking about evil. He'd been an officer in the war in Iraq in the early 2000s. And he was saying, well, I saw, I, I saw all sorts of evil things. And I wonder what that is. And it's a conversation for another day because we're getting yeah. close to the top of our, our time. And, and yet to have this be our closing question, you know, did we see evil on, on Derek Chauvin's face? So it's a wonderful place to end. I know it might not sound as upbeat to some people as what I perceive it as, because it's an existential question. It's a question that we have arrived at through this conversation that you and I've been having for years and years and years. And, and, and this is just an extension of the conversation, but it's a, it's a question, does evil exist? And of course, also does good exist? And how do those two move in between each other? And I think poetry is one of the ways that we can explore those questions we'll never answer. I do wish we could end on a more positive note than that. But the fact is, is it was one of the truths of this year. It's one of the things I had to deal with because of the project I signed on to. And there was no way not to cover that. I, I completely agree with you. And, and in a way, my friend, to me, this is positive because you and I, once again, have a connection that we've nurtured over the years. And obviously, it's still very, very vital. And to end on the honest question of does it even exist, evil, is answering what is honesty. I always like to end on yes. some upbeat, happy yeah. note. Thank you ever so much for listening to the Twice Five Miles radio. <laughs> but this is more honest. It's a nice place to end because honesty by its nature is upbeat. I, I had to end a situation one time by, by just simply saying, it is not the poet's job to make you more comfortable. That's just not my job. <laughs> that was the only way I could figure out how to end that particular conversation. They wanted me to be something else. On that note, I would like to end our conversation by, by saying it's been an absolute pleasure 
to connect with you and track these ideas over this past hour. And it's made me feel comfortable. And so <laughs> even if you, even if the poet's job is to not make me feel comfortable, <laughs> this conversation has made me feel comfortable and I've smiled and really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it very much. It was a lot of fun and so great to uh, connect with you after this crazy year. And I hope we do it some more in person, hoping you come to Asheville in the fall and we'll meet there and maybe we'll meet in Taos a little bit later in the summer. Yes, I'm, I'm headed Taos Way in middle of August, so we'll see what happens. All right. Well, until then, I'm going to say goodbye and say thank you, Nathan Brown. All right. Thanks, man. All right. And there you go, my friends, a wonderful conversation with my good friend Nathan Brown, singer, songwriter, poet, and the creator of the Fire Pit Sessions. I hope you enjoyed this conversation about how one can use poetry, or you can use poetry, collaboratively. Even though we often say writing is a lonely thing to do, in fact, it's also a collective proposition. So if you're out there thinking you'd like to do something creatively, like write poetry similar to what Nathan does, you can always call up a friend or a couple of friends and gather around in a small group. Create your own fire pit session, if you will, and see what surprises you, see what comes out. You know, when I do these interviews with people like Nathan or any of the guests on my show, I never prepare. I always wait until we start to speak and I ask a question I'm inspired to ask, something simple or something complicated. I never know what it's going to be. And then I wait for the person to respond back. And the response back is what brings out the next question and brings the conversation forward. So when you're sitting around your own fire pit session, you and two or three other friends, you can do the same thing. Who knows what the conversation will give you or where you will lead it or where it will lead you. In this conversation Nathan and I just had, he mentioned the poetry book he helped publish when he was Poet Laureate of Oklahoma, inviting poets from outside of Oklahoma to send work about Oklahoma. I've had some connection with that state. I've spent a fair amount of time in Oklahoma City and also a great deal of time in Norman, Oklahoma, where Nathan is from. So when Nathan invited me to submit a poem about Oklahoma, I submitted the Tulsa Pool Player, which I would like to read for you now. Here goes. He played pool, that boy from Tulsa. His name was Jack and he could scatter those pool balls like rainbows across a green sky. He was dusty, his hands were quick, and his deep eyes won hearts. Oh, never more than one light bulb above my table, Jack would say. I, I don't like to squint while I win. Fifty dollars and enough stamina to play all night would get you into one of Jack's games. All of the boys at the pool hall smoked and leaned forward as they watched those pool balls orbit straight into the hungry corners. Now Jack's mouth was always open just a little bit, and when he laughed, you could hear the money rustling in his pockets. Even the rack boys stood still. On the afternoon, Jack's cue ball nicked a yellow nine and spun the black eight into the corner. When the ball dropped, Jack stood quiet for a second, and then he said, What a game, what a game. Boys, drinks are on me. 
A couple of weeks later, on the afternoon Jack pulled out of town, all those boys down at the pool hall started claiming that their cue balls were running just a little bit straighter, and they said everybody's luck had improved. On Christmas Eve, word came back that a brown-haired West Texas girl from the Apache Mountains had spun past Jack on the break and left him a thousand dollars down by dawn. They said it didn't bother Jack a bit. He just smiled his smile, laughed out loud, leaned his cue stick against the rail, and bought her a cup of coffee. Now when this story ricocheted around that pool room, all of those boys laughed, tipped their glasses back, and left every cue stick in the house standing straight up at attention. He played pool, that boy from Tulsa. His name was Jack, and he could scatter those pool balls like rainbows across a green sky. And that was the Tulsa Pool Player, the poem I submitted to Nathan's poetry book he published a few years ago. Of course, Jack was a bit of a rambler, pool player, as you gathered when you listened to the poem, and in some ways I identify with Jack because over my life I've roamed around the country a fair amount myself, and of course Nathan Brown and I have a lot in common because Nathan roams around the country too. I think he does it a little bit more now than than I do. I'm off the road. I've not really retired from the road, but you know, not as much on the road as, as Nathan's going to be in the next year or so. It does remind me of a story Nathan and I participated in a few years ago. I imagine 10 years ago. We had both been asked to be a part of a writing weekend workshop. It was held in Nathan's hometown, Norman, Oklahoma, where the University of Oklahoma is. And what was interesting about the workshop was... The location. It was in the old depot, the train station, and the train station had been turned into an art gallery by the town, and it was a wonderful place. Lots of light, lots of beautiful art, more than one place to hold workshops, so we moved around from the art gallery to the auditorium, which was a small little auditorium with a stage where we gave a show. We both stood on stage and, and made our art, our music. Nathan was playing his guitar, singing his songs, and he accompanied me with some of my poems, and I believe the Tulsa pool player made an appearance at that workshop. Now, the reason why the Old Depot is an important part of this story is because it was sitting beside an active railroad track. If you've ever traveled around like Jack the Pool Player likely did in his day, maybe still does, and if you've traveled throughout any of the Midwest, you have seen likely these long, long freight trains that seem to just stretch forever across the plains. And it's a bit romantic to watch the freight train move along and hear it blow its whistle when it slows down for a railroad crossing. Well, as I just mentioned, we were in the old depot next to the railroad track. Sometimes the old depot sits next to a railroad track that's out of use. This railroad track was one of the main railroad tracks that ran south out of Oklahoma City for all of these long freight trains that I just talked about, right? So here we are teaching our workshop. It's a bright sunny morning and we're gathered and we're right in the middle of a writing prompt and getting people to read their work and having a great old time when we hear the whistle, the train blow, and it's roaring down the track. 
And I thought, oh, ooh, here comes the train. And so the train did arrive and it roared past and roared past and roared past and continued to roar past five minutes maybe long. Now, if the train were going full speed, it wouldn't take so long to go past the train station. But of course, it's Norman, Oklahoma. So the engineer driving the train had to slow the whole proposition down. I imagine it was a mile long train. They're very, very big, those trains. And the train rumbled past, and so we sat quietly at our workshop while the train passed, which is what you do if you're teaching a workshop. You have some kind of disruption and something happens, like the motorcycle starts out front, or you hear uh, a siren coming by, or, or whatever the disruption is. You just pause, wait, and the disruption passes, and you pick it back up again. So that's what we did. We followed protocol, and we were doing great. Another hour passed. I bet you know what I'm going to tell you. Another train came, maybe an hour and a half. It was a regular occurrence. And then we waited and waited and waited, and it was a longer train, so it took quite a while for the train to pass. Now, this train interrupted us right in the mid-course of our day, and somewhere in the second train, we decided to use the trains as writing prompts to ask the people to stop whatever they were doing when the train roared by and jot down train impressions while the train was passing. And that wouldn't have been so effective if we had only had two trains. I lost track of how many trains went by. The trains became the star of the day. So as we moved through our work, people started to generate these odd little pieces about trains and they started to remember what their childhood was like putting a penny on the track or listening to the train at a distance i don't remember if somebody was a hobo in the workshop or not might have been a hobo there i do remember a lot of people aspired to to answer the call of the train to hop hop the rails and and go away to freedom and so we spent the whole day that day playing with the idea of trains passing. And of course, when you're up close at a depot turned into an art gallery, all you see when the train passes are the, are the cars zipping by. And even though the train is going slow, the appearance seems fast. And so you really don't even see the train. You just see one boxcar after the next, after the next, rumbling along to wherever the boxcars go. And of course, the trains were going north and going south. Now, we never did work out how they figured out where to go and how to pull over and all of the engineering that has to go on to get the trains to go north and south. But people did figure out how to include those trains in, in their writing. So I just wanted to tell you that story because it's important for all of us who decide to do some kind of creative work, if it's writing a poem or writing a song or, or doing whatever you do, the environment you're in is, is your ally. It, you, it has benefits that you can't imagine. And when something comes along that seems disruptive, like say a pandemic, which we've just experienced, you can make something of it. You can create your own fire pit sessions, just like Nathan did, or like Nathan and I did when the train went by. Instead of thinking of it as something that was a liability, an obstacle, a block, 
We just incorporated it into the day. And now, years later, I don't really remember what I wrote that day, or really, for that matter, what anybody else wrote. But I do remember those trains going by. And I do remember how warm it felt when we all sat together and tried to make something of what we called, at first, a disruption. And I imagine if Jack, the pool player, had dropped into the workshop, I suppose Jack would have written something as well about the train. And on that hobo note, we have arrived at the end of the show. I appreciate you tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I am your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville. 103.7 streaming online globally wpvmfm.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico Mr. Walter Parks gets credit for our theme song if you like Walter's music walterparks.com good place to look if you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. And if you would like to join me on Saturday morning for a writing prompt of the week session with, with me and my collaborative creative partner, Allegra Houston, we do this every Saturday at noon Eastern Time, 5 p.m. London Time, Mountain Time, 10 a.m., so if you have some time on Saturday morning and you are free, we would love it if you join us. The door is always open. It lasts an hour, and we have some good fun. You can always find the link at imaginativestorm.com, imaginativestorm.com. And we will be storming our imaginations a little bit like when the train went by the, the, the depot there in Norman, Oklahoma all those years ago. Thank you so much for your attention. I hope you tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.